The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason Deroshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. You can find more from Dr. Deroshi at www.jasonderoshi.com. All of you have handouts. Anybody need a handout? All right, everybody should have one. You're going to turn at your tables, and what we have is a group of texts. And four different groups, four different statements. What we're looking at right now are foundational principles that should guide our thinking about wisdom in the Bible. So you're going to read the text together and then write down a single statement summary in a principle form for each of the groups. Go. All right, let's come back together. If you didn't make it, that's okay. Just keep your ears open. Okay, back table. Back table. I need one representative just to stand up good and loud and give us your summary statement for group one. Wisdom for comes from God. Any, uh, very, very good. Any other uh, pushback or questions on that? Very good. Wisdom comes from God. God is the source of wisdom. How about group two? Let's go back table over here. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Any pushback or questions on that one? Okay. It's this element, biblical wisdom beginning with the fear of God, that distinguishes all biblical wisdom from worldly wisdom. This foundation that God is big and I am not. That when He speaks, I should be listening. That when He guides, I should be following. Worldly wisdom doesn't have God on the map. And this sets biblical wisdom apart. The fact that God is wise identifies, that's why I say, for humans, all biblical wisdom begins with the fear of God. But he's the source of wisdom. He doesn't fear himself, and yet he is all wise. But for us, to gain what he has demands, from the start, a sense of neediness, a sense of reverence, A reverent awe, that's what our fear is. Not a fear that pushes us to flee, but a fear that pushes us to follow. We can fear different things that can kill us, like the Grand Canyon. It can kill us if we are not careful there. And yet, the fact that we fear it can move us to delight in it to stand in awe of it, and to still be alive. I teach my children, when they are little, I have a table full, six of our own kids, then now two son-in-laws. And when my kids were young, uh, three of our children came from Ethiopia. They had never even been around a stove. They had a fire pit in their hut. And so they needed to learn about the stove. And 
don't touch, meant one thing to a three-year-old, and it didn't, it didn't mean they could never touch, but we needed to teach them to fear heat. Without it, they'll die. With it, they could die. So they need to, to have a proper reverence that doesn't move them to flee from the stove every time a little light comes on, but one that helps them understand what it means to, to approach such power that can cause life and cause death and do it with reverence. For humans, all biblical wisdom begins with fearing God. Group three. God promises wisdom if you work to seek it, okay? Anybody want to qualify that or add anything? Everybody thinks that sounds great. Humans should humbly seek wisdom through instruction. So seek it like silver, open the book, begin to read it, listen to mom and dad. And then James adds, if any of you lacks it, what do we do? Ask. Pray. Okay, fourth group, more challenging to put it together. Right here. Fourth, fourth group right here. What do you guys have? The wisdom of God found in Christ brings life, whereas worldly wisdom brings death. Excellent. What do you guys have for statement four? Okay, godly wisdom looks different than worldly wisdom. We, oh, we, we need this table here? Okay. Christ's crucifixion is the catalyst for true wisdom. Okay, all those cuz sound pretty good. All right. Here's what I did. True wisdom is found in Christ and stands against the wisdom of the world. Did you note that it said... Worldly wisdom, where does it come from in James? What did it say? It's demonic. Guard your hearts. Seek wisdom in the right place. All right. So, defining wisdom. There's about... 25 different folks in the Bible that are called wise. And often their wisdom is associated with specific skill sets. Wisdom is choice literature. By that I mean it's about helping us learn how to live rightly to make the right decisions in God's world. In a way that will result in His glory rather than our destruction. So here is how I define wisdom. It's not just knowing something, it's actually exercising that knowledge. It's the exercise knowledge by which God oversees and governs the world. He's a wise God. And His wisdom is is manifest as he begins to govern reality. Wisdom is about order. And as God guides, oversees, governs his world, he does so in an ordered way. And that is wisdom. 
For humans, through fearing God, we are to oversee and govern His world in an ordered way. Insofar as we align with His definitions of right order, we are walking wisely. So, putting it together, wisdom is the exercise knowledge by which God oversees or governs His world in an ordered way, and by which humans, through a fear-generating encounter with God, are to do the same as His representatives. We are to reflect, resemble, represent God. That's what it means to be an image-bearer. We reflect, we resemble, we represent. Insofar as we are looking like Him, following His lead, in an orderly fashion, we are walking wisely. Laws set boundaries. But they only set the boundaries. Wisdom takes all those principles and begins to apply them in new contexts that are not specifically addressed by the laws. The Bible has lots of laws, but they're still limited in their scope. The wise person encounters the living God, prays for help, in applying principles, and begins to live day in, day out, making choices, engaging with friends, determining what you're going to be involved in this semester, whether you're going to get out of bed and open your Bible or get to class. Will you walk wisely or will you walk foolishly? And all of us have made foolish decisions. And it's because of that reality that we need someone to whom we can look. Not only for wisdom, but for our right standing with God. And Christ is the ultimate supplier. He is the embodiment of what it means to align with God's definition of right order. And therefore, we look to Him first in our pursuit of wise living. Because we need a God who's 100% for us when it comes to battling pornography. When it comes to living in a way that doesn't carry bitterness for the bad parenting my dad gave me. I want to live wisely, and yet I keep failing. So what do we need? We need God to already be 100% for us. The only sin that we can conquer is forgiven sin. If you're trying to conquer sin without God already being 100% for you, through Christ, the ultimate wise one, you will fail. Period. So we need to rest in a Christ who is our wisdom. Celebrating that He is the ultimate embodiment of every ethical ideal. And from that basis then, we can begin to pursue right living on our own exercising knowledge. But we do so with a God who's for us, not against us. There's different kinds of wisdom. It comes in different ways. There's a group of books that are dominated by wisdom. Who would be bold enough to take a stab? What are the main wisdom books? Proverbs? Proverbs? Job and Ecclesiastes. 
Those are the books that are dominated by what's called wisdom pursuits. So let's consider the different avenues through which wisdom comes. So we've got Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Two different kinds of wisdom. Two different types. There's speculative wisdom, and there is prudential wisdom. Speculative wisdom is simply analyzing what is right and what is wrong. And doing so in the context of the fear of God. Prudential wisdom, considering what can make life better. Which choices should I be making? So, analyzing what's right and wrong, and then actually assessing what choice, based on the choice I make today, how will it influence my tomorrow? So, as you can imagine, analyzing what is right and wrong, Job and Ecclesiastes do that a lot. Whereas the book of Proverbs is actually pushing us into which choice should I make between one of two ways. In wisdom literature is, is fairly uh, discreet. It simply lays out, this is the way of the wise, this is the way of the fool, don't go this way. This is where Lady Wisdom resides, young man. This is Dame Folly. Both are attractive and alluring. Where are you going to go? Wisdom in Hebrew is feminine. It's an abstract noun. Almost all nouns, abstract nouns in Hebrew are feminine. Chokmah, that ah ending, is a feminine ending. It doesn't mean that wisdom is by nature girlish. It's just the way the Hebrew grammar works. But in a book like Proverbs, it actually used that feminine grammatical gender to its benefit because it portrays wisdom as a woman. And you have these royal figures like Solomon who are writing on behalf of his children. There's a future king in mind when Proverbs is written. And a father is guiding his son as to what that future king should look like what kind of choices that future king should make, what ways should this future king live. And in that context, he shapes woman in the first nine chapters. Sorry, he shapes wisdom as a woman. Desirable, pleasing, enticing. So be careful which woman you hang out with. Woman wisdom or woman folly. Two different kinds of wisdom, and they come at us in two different or three different ways. You can have the teacher or the monologue, 
of the book of Ecclesiastes or of the first nine chapters of Proverbs, where you simply have one figure who's doing all the instruction. Ecclesiastes, you may have heard the term ekklesia. That's the Greek term for church. Ecclesiastes comes from, it's the Latin form and Greek form, rendering the Hebrew term koheleth which is the assembler. So this is a book whose Ecclesiastes, the main voice, we often translate it the preacher or the teacher, but very literally, he's the assembler. He's the one who's gathering people into a room like this in order to instruct and give his wisdom. And Solomon is now an old man who's learned from lots of mistakes. 1 Kings 11, where he got whatever it was, 300 wives, 700 concubines, and his life went really far down. What Ecclesiastes suggests is that at the end of his life, Solomon, whom the book of Chronicles doesn't portray with all of his sin, Kings does, but Chronicles has a different purpose. And Chronicles allows Solomon to die looking like a godly man. And I think he was. That's why we have the book of Ecclesiastes. You have an older man's wisdom calling together, assembling a group just like this to say, will you listen? I learned the hard way. Let me tell you my story. So you've got Three different formats. The teaching format, where there's just the teacher, call it the monologue, in which a presentation of what is right and wrong is simply being made, like I'm doing right this minute. But then, what other format do you have? Think about the book of Job. It's not just one person doing the teaching. What do you have in Job? Conversation. Conversation. You have, not monologue, but Dialogue, where there's both presentation of what is right and wrong and a response of what is right and wrong. And then it's left up to you and I to have to wrestle with the text. I mean, have you ever been reading Eliphaz or Zophar or Bildad in the book of Job and hearing them and saying, it actually sounds pretty right. And then you and I are being forced to come to the end of the book where God says, while he's talking to Job, Eliphaz and your two friends, you didn't speak right about me. That's what God says. That's God's commentary on all those speeches from Job's three really nice friends. And so you and I are are forced back into the dialogue using the commentary that the book itself gives Job spoke right of me, you three spoke wrong of me, and then we're forced into the dialogue to wrestle with how do we interpret this wisdom and find the right path. So we've got, in the wisdom book, straight teaching, monologue, we've got dialogue where there's presentation and response, and then what's the third category? A proverb. So we want to consider... 
all three of these categories today, we're going to look at three different groups of texts, and um, we'll spend our most time in Proverbs, but we're going to start looking at a dialogue in the book of Job. So open up your Bibles. We're just going to look at Job 1 and 2, and we're going to look at a dialogue through my monological teaching for a second. Job 1 and 2. May the Lord open His Word to us. All right. When we're reading a story as it starts out here, we're wanting to listen for the clues that are given to us. God is the ultimate author of Scripture. But even more than God, actually the character God speaking, we get more from the narrator. or So the storyteller, or the sage, or the songwriter. We hear the human's voice. And it's actually that human that God has used to determine how much of God we're going to hear, and what of God we're going to know. The narrator, or the singer, or the poet, is the highest level authority when it comes to opening up the Bible and reading. We're looking at Paul's sermons, or we're looking at the gospel writer's account of Jesus. It's the highest level authority. And we equate that with the authority of God because God was speaking every word, no error. But right away, when we open up the book of Job, we hear a wise narrator talking, and he's going to give us clarity about how to read the story. He says, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright. He was one who feared God and turned away from evil. The narrator tells us this man is blameless and upright. He fears God, the beginning of wisdom. He fears God. So no matter what Job's three friends say, I, the narrator who am giving you this book, am telling you he was a blameless man. It doesn't mean he was perfect. Blame is about other people outside being able to accuse him of wrong. And they couldn't accuse him of anything. His three friends are going to look at the result, the effect, the consequence in their mind of certain activity. Namely, they're going to look at his really bad life. Everything is going to go, go down really fast. And they're going to make conclusions. But the narrator up front tells us they may say that he's blameworthy. That's why this is happening. And he tells us up front that's not the case. It's like the Gospel of John, chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples are walking and they see a man born blind. And what do they ask him? Was this his, about his sin or his parents' sin? That's Job's three friends. They're drawing a conclusion based on a present scenario 
And Jesus says, no, it had nothing to do with their sin. But this happened in order that the glory of God might be put on display in this moment. This suffering is not by chance. It's for a purpose, and that purpose has to do with the glory of God. That's what we're going to see here. So the narrator has given us his rundown. Then he tells us how productive this guy was. There were born to him seven sons, three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. All those numbers matter because at the end of the book, we're going to find out he's going to get double of what he had. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters. It's nice when there's family unity. They would eat and drink together, and when the days of the feast ran its course, Job would act in a priestly way. He would go before God, and he would pray for his children in case any of them had sinned, and he would plead like Moses did on behalf of all Israel. This father would plead on behalf of his kids. The narrator says Job was blameless. Now we come to the first episode of the story. The episode has two scenes. You could also think of the whole book of Job like a giant play. It seems to be laid out that way with with multiple acts. Five of them, actually. You could actually see, envision, the entire book of Job being played out on a on a stage with the narrator, a God figure, and the episodes moving with with Job and his three companions back and forth, dialogue, dialogue, back and forth. This is Act 1. Scene 1. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. I don't think this is happening anymore. Satan has been cast out of the heavenly realm, but this is the place where he would go to accuse. He can no longer accuse. Christ has addressed matters at the cross definitively. But until Christ came, there was question, are you just? And so we learn in order to show that he was just and the justifier of all who believed, that's why he sent Jesus in the fullness of time. But Satan would go, and he would enter into the sacred place, where God alone is seated on the throne. And all this heavenly counsel was there, the good and the bad angels. And Satan is there, we're told, and he queries with God. Yahweh actually initiates, from where have you come, Satan, verse 7, I've been roaming the whole earth, walking up and down. Yahweh said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? This is foundational to trying to understand the book. We're in the middle of a a dialogue, a presentation of what is right and a response. The same thing is going to happen through the rest of the book, where Job is going to be there and his three friends are going to be there and there's going to be the the dialogue. Here it's between Yahweh and Satan. 
Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Not only does the narrator tell us, he allows God to tell us. So now the narrator has spoken under the authority of the living God, and then the character, Yahweh, says the same thing. Job is a blameless man. Have you, Satan, in all of your temptation, in all of your problem-making, considered my servant Job? Job's never going to learn about this encounter that we learn about. the, The book never tells us that Job knows this stuff. But the narrator knew, and the narrator could be Job, retelling the story. But it's giving us an account that is is going to be separated from the rest of the book. We don't know whether or not Job has any clue of this interchange that was happening in the heavenly realm. But God creates a context for a test. And the tests in heaven are a call to wisdom on the earth. Have you considered my servant Job? So what does Job, what does Satan say? Does Job fear you for no reason? You take away his hedge of protection and he'll stop fearing you. In New Testament language, we would use, he'll stop believing in you. But in the Old Testament, the language, although believing is part of the vocabulary, fearing is much more common. Believing is a proper disposition toward God's promises. Fearing is a proper disposition toward God's character. And fear produces faith. A proper fear of God awakens a disposition toward His promises. Here it starts with that foundational piece. Does Job fear you for nothing? Satan thinks Job fears God, fears God simply because his life's okay. But allow his life to enter into suffering He'll stop fearing you. That means he'll stop making the right choices. He'll start living the life of the fool rather than the life of the wise. Why do you trust God today? Why do you pursue Him? Is there a sense of entitlement? I'm in. I deserve life to be well. This Bible is filled with a theology of suffering, and it's intimately tied to a life of wisdom. God is the instigator here. He gives Satan freedom, but do not touch his life. So then the story continues, and we read about the losses. Verse 14 13, there was a day when the sons and daughters of Job were all gathered, seven sons, 
three daughters. They're all gathered in the house, just like the narrator told us that they often do. And Job's going to be met by four messengers. There came a messenger to Job. The oxen were plowing and the donkey feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck them down. I alone escaped. While he was speaking, the second messenger came. The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone escaped. Verse 17. While he was speaking, a third messenger came. The Chaldeans formed three groups, made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants by the edge of the sword. I alone escaped. Fourth messenger Your sons and daughters were eating. Behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. The house fell and they all died. Some of you know the pain of loss. It's nothing to be pushed aside. This is a cursed and a broken world. I had a brother die. I had a baby die. I had an adoption that failed with a little boy in southern Ethiopia that we longed to bring home. Loss stings. We can't jump over this. We're supposed to, as we're reading the Scripture, feel appropriately about what we're reading. And this provides a context for wisdom. Deep suffering provides a context for wisdom. Wise living. What does it look like? Look with me at verse 20. Here's this dad. He arises, tears his robe, shaves his head, falls on the ground, and what does he do? Worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, feel the weight of that. He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. My heart will truly say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know that song? It's right there. But notice how he talks. Yahweh gave. Yahweh took away. Wait. Satan was there. Yahweh gave. And Yahweh took away. That's Job's theological conviction. Period. Quotation mark. In all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. Verse 21. Look at that. Does he have right theology? Is he thinking wisely about the world? Is he thinking about things in an orderly way? God gave and God took away. This suffering is not happening outside of his control. He didn't all of a sudden hop off the throne of the universe. He was there before the wind came and he was there after the wind blew. Do you have that big of a God in your theology? 
There was another day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, scene two. Satan also came among them to present himself. From where have you come, Satan? Yahweh said. From going to and fro, from walking up and down on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Satan answers the Lord, skin for skin, all that a man has, he'll give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to his face, to your face. Notice what he just said. You stretch out your hand. You touch his bone and flesh. That's Satan's theology. That's what's going on here. I'm merely an instrument, Satan understands rightly. Something that we see happening in the book of Job and in the book of Ecclesiastes especially is trying to understand, live wisely in a world that doesn't make sense. Where God proves that He's beyond our grasp. One of the constant refrains we're going to see in the next passage we look at. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, Everything under the sun is breath, a shepherding of wind, ESV, a striving after wind. That's what reality's like. The wind blows and I try to grab it. How do you do? I can't get my hands around the wind. I don't know where it's blowing and why it's blowing and I can't get my hands around it. I can't grasp it. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. And how inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He should be replayed? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, including the loss of Job's sons and daughters. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. Why is the fear of God the beginning of wisdom? Because we are to tremble at the bigness of this God. To think about living rightly in His world. Work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He's the one who shapes your will. He's the one who empowers your work. And because I am so dependent and needy on that kind of a God, I work out my salvation. I work out my salvation with fear and with trembling. That's the life of wisdom. The book of Job is setting us up. God gives Satan the green light. 
Verse 7, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Job said, You speak like a foolish woman. Wise people don't do that. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we also not receive evil? We don't live in a dualism. I don't know whether he was senator, emperor. I think he was Emperor Palpatine at the time. Anakin says something like, "The, but isn't the dark side dark? And Palpatine says, darkness is a matter of perspective. At one level, he says something true. That if there are two equal powers of good and evil, then actually you can't call one good and one evil because there's no standard upon which to weigh the value. It's all a matter of perspective. But into that world of potential, Genesis 1 says... It is very good. It is very, it is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. And then there's a tree pertaining to the knowledge of good and of evil, meaning that there is a standard. There are not two eternal powers at odds with one another. There is one supreme being seated on the throne of the universe. One. And the serpent who was Created, says Genesis 3.1, was crafty. We can't understand how it is that it works in all the ways that it does. I'm sure Job was saying, why me? Why now? Why this hard? Why this long? Silence. But it did not alter his conviction in a God who was absolutely in control of all things. Believe me, you don't want to throw that teaching out and say, that's not the God I want to believe in. Why do I say that? Because when you need help, you need a God who is powerful enough to overcome every obstacle and work on your behalf. That's true biblical And if you make God small, that is, if you make Satan big enough to alter God's purposes, Job 42, no purpose of yours, O Yahweh, can be thwarted. None. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things, all things, all things, according to the counsel of his will. That's massive big God theology at the foundation of wisdom. 
The fear of that God who causes all things and is the only uncaused one. The fear of that God is the beginning of wisdom. And this whole book of Job is set up as a giant test in order to prove, not to the earthly sphere, but to the spiritual sphere. The cosmic forces and powers that God is worth fearing simply because of who He is and not because of what He gives or takes away. Is that the God you believe in? Or will you run and head south when life gets really hard? And believe me, the days of darkness will be many, says the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Many dark days. Many days that we can't understand where my trying to grasp reality is like like shepherding wind. I can't do it. So how will we respond? Listen to what Job says. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive also evil, yet in a way that God is not tainted by any wicked thing? There's mystery here. And then the narrator declares once again, after that question, quotation, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Don't think that he's got bad theology. He's got right theology. Wisdom is not only understanding the way that we should go. It's recognizing God is the source of the path we're to walk on. And often that's through a valley. But it's on the other side of the valley that you begin to climb and see vistas that you could have never explored apart from journeying in the valley. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes now. Look, go to chapter 3. There's a season for everything. That's how we open here. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planting, planted. There is a time to kill. And there's a time to heal. To weep, laugh, mourn, dance, cast stones, gather stones, embrace, refrain from embracing, seek, lose, keep, cast away, tear, sow, keep silence, speak, love, hate, war, and peace. Come to verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Now think, we've got an old 
sage, speaking to his grandkids. I've seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in his time. He's even put eternity in the heart of every man. I think that means he's given every man a capacity. Part of being made in the image of God is a capacity to reflect, resemble, and represent God. To have a connection with eternal things. He's put into the heart of every man eternity. Yet, what does it say? Yet so that man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So we have a God who's been shepherding everything really well. From beginning to end. And yet, the way that He's shaped us, even though we have a capacity to know God, we're ignorant. We don't know all that He did from the beginning. We don't know all that He will do tomorrow. And God made it that way. Just turn ahead really quick to chapter 7. Verse 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? This is a cursed and broken world, and we cannot straighten it. And it's the work of God. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, know this. God has made the one as well as the other. And He's done so in a way that we don't know what's coming next. You see that? So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, know this. God has made the one as well as the other. The day of prosperity and the day of adversity. And yet He's done it in such a way that you don't know what's coming next. Turn back to chapter 3. Verse 11 again. God made everything beautiful in its time. He put eternity into man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So how do we respond? I perceived in such a context that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil if God grants such a gift. I perceived... That whatever God does, look at what he says, three things. Whatever God does endures forever. 
It will not be changed. Nothing can be added to it. God is the orchestrator of everything, the only uncaused one. Nor can anything be taken from it. No purpose of His can be thwarted. Now to say that, we have to understand there's at least that there's two different levels to the will of God. God can will Pharaoh, let my people go. And He can will, even before we hear Him say, let my people go, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will not let my people go. And both are His will. When we say no purpose of God can be thwarted, not even Satan can thwart God's purpose, we're talking about an ultimate sovereign will. Satan thwarts God's revealed will all the time. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. I didn't love my neighbor. There was jealousy in my heart, and that was demonic, said James chapter 3. It's the wisdom of the world. So Satan was there at work, pushing me, even as a believer, to act like I was when I was a non-believer. When I was dead in my trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air who's at work in the sons of disobedience. He's at work in them. But even I as a believer can have that demonic influence on my soul, says James, moving me to be jealous. Why does God allow a world where I'm so out of control, not in control? A world that I can't make sense of. Why me, God? Why this hard? Why this long? That's Job's questions. And they're the questions about why suffering in the book of Job that we don't get answered very well. Why me? Why this hard? Why this long? And this says, look at verse 14, God has done it, why? Why? What does it say? What? So that people would fear Him. The revealed purpose behind God's orchestrating the universe like He is, is to put us in a context where we'll fear Him. If you could understand everything in this world, why fear God? I can go my own way and be my own king or queen. But instead, He puts us in a context of helplessness, of neediness, where we're reminded over and over again, I worked hard on that paper and I still got a C. I thought He was the man... And now he's gone and he went after my girlfriend. It doesn't make sense, God. Why did my dad lose his job? Why did my grandpa die of COVID? Why can't I find my place? God, this doesn't make sense. I wouldn't make the world this way. Why do you do it this way? He's done it so that, he will, so that we will fear him. He opposes the proud, brothers and sisters. He gives grace to whom? The humble. 
can you embrace a cursed and broken world as a context of the love of your God for you? Where He's leading you in paths of challenge and suffering and darkness. Because He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And He wants you to fear Him. Look at chapter 8, verse 12. Why would He want us to fear Him? Why is that so important? Chapter 8, verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. We see many of those. Where the wicked seem to thrive and everything goes well. And you're trying to honor the Lord and it's not going well. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Why does he put us in a context where it forces us into, to recognize our own neediness and to tremble at his bigness that I can't control? Why does he put me in a context to fear him? Because I know that it will be well ultimately with those who fear God. Because they fear before Him, but it will not be well with the wicked, neither will He prolong His days like a shadow, because He does not fear before God. There's eternal things at stake. I think about the book of Ephesians. I'm just going to read this, this one verse. Chapter 3, it says... God has made known the unsearchable riches of Christ to both Gentile and Jew alike so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Ephesians 3.10 Why is God working the way that He's working? Because there's rulers and authorities, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against those principalities and powers, rulers and authorities of this present darkness. Be a good book title. We're wrestling against them. We're warring against them. And in order to make the manifold wisdom of God be put on display to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places, God is working His church the way that He is. There's cosmic things at stake when you and I are suffering. Don't give in and don't give up. Keep hoping. Keep trusting. Even when life doesn't make sense. Turn with me to now chapter 11. Light is sweet, chapter 11, verse 7. And it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Now you might just automatically think, oh, that's nice. 
He understands creation. This morning while I was driving in, the two hours from Kansas City, before us was the moon going down, full, full moon going down below the horizon, and all over my dashboard and in my mirror was just brilliant pinks and purples and reds. It's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun, especially if you've been in the darkness for a long time. But this isn't just general wisdom, because chapter 2 sets us up. This book, over and over again, says it's about life under the sun. S-U-N. But in chapter 2, it says this, I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, just as there is more gain in light than in darkness. It's one of the reasons why I don't translate that word breath as meaningless or vanity. I don't think that's, a, that's the right translation for this book. Because he doesn't believe everything is meaningless. There's more gain in light than in darkness. It's not all meaningless. Then he says this. The wise, hear that, the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. It's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. The fool never sees it. Oh, they might, certainly, most fools are not physically blind. But when it says it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun... Light is sweet. He's already set the stage in chapter 2 to help us recognize he's talking about wise people having an encounter with the living God. Because the fool walks in darkness all the time. So light is sweet. And it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. For my ESV has so there is no reason that they should have translated that as so. That conjunction never makes an inference. So I don't know why they did that. So, I crossed it out in my Bible. I put four. I would encourage you to do it too. Let's, let's look at the logic as I understand it. That's my role. I stand before God as a teacher. I'll be held accountable before my, the living God, and it's my responsibility to proclaim to you what I think the Word is saying, and I don't think it says so. I think it says four. Light is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun, for, now he's going to give us the reason. Why is it so special to see light once in a while? For, if a person lives many years, he ought to rejoice in them all. But know this. Let him also remember the days of darkness will be many. See if you can track the logic as I understand it. Light is sweet because God wants you, if you get to live long, He wants you to rejoice in every day, all your years. Rejoice in them all. Light is sweet. 
And it has something to do with persevering joy, even though the days of darkness will be many. Darkness, light. Light is sweet. Many dark days. And if you haven't tasted them yet, they are coming. This is a hard, cursed, broken world. And we have to, as Christians, be willing to face it as it is. And not live with a sense of entitlement that says, if it's not good, I'm gone. We are the body of Christ. Before Jesus could enjoy his resurrection body, no more pain, no more tears, he had to carry his cross. And we as the body of Christ have to follow Christ in the path of suffering, carrying our cross before we can enjoy the crown. The resurrection is coming. The return of Jesus will happen. But right now we're in the days of walking walking the hard road with a cross on our back. And often it looks like identifying with Jesus and trusting the Father saying, not my will, yours be done, all the way to our own dark journey. Light is sweet because in the moments when you can see it, grab it. Because it is the very fuel that will help you have joy all your days, even in the dark ones. That's that's the logic as I understand it. When God gives you a glimpse, it might be a hot fudge sundae. It might be an evening of Catan with friends. It might be just getting to play with your nieces and nephews. A sweet time with that guy, that girl. An awesome worship service. When God gives you those glimpses that only the wise can see, glimpses of goodness, hold on to them. Because they are intended by God, according to this text, to be the fuel that will give you endurance. It will remind you. This is why Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition. What? With thanksgiving. Remember the times of light. Let them flood over your mind. Write them down in your journal. Because you need them to battle for joy. That's what the writer is saying. The days of darkness are going to be many. But light is sweet. And light always comes. Genesis chapter 1. Against Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It does not say there was morning and there was evening. What does it say? There was evening and there was Morning, day one. Evening, morning, day two. Evening, morning, day three. In God's calendar, the day ends with light, not with night. Spring always comes after winter. And though it may feel like ever winter and never Christmas, God's bringing it. And when you see it, Pause and let it soak in, says the wisdom teacher. And when you do, you'll be putting something on display. Does Job fear you simply because all is well? 
And God says, no, Job fears me simply because of who I am. Not because of what I give or what I take away. He has encountered something. I have let him taste and see that I am good. And that taste will fuel him even in the famine. This is wisdom. You've got your hand out. There's something that says Proverbs test. So you're going to need a pencil. And I'm going to read a bunch of Proverbs. I'm going to read the first half, and then I'm going to pause. I don't want you to verbalize it. Okay, this is just between you and your sheet. If you can say the second half of the proverb, just give yourself a point, okay? And we're going to see how, how well you know some English proverbs. And as we do, I want you to keep in mind, okay, what is it that actually makes up a proverb? Okay? That's, that's where we're heading. How do we define proverbs? <clears throat> you ready? I have 40, okay? So... Hold on and keep track of your score. All right? Here we go. Again, I'm going to say the first half. I'm going to pause. Don't say it out loud. You just say it in your own mind. And if you can say the second half correctly, give yourself a point. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. A chain is no stronger than its weakest link. A leopard cannot change its spots. A penny saved is a penny earned. A stitch in time saves nine. Actions speak louder than words. Are you guys keeping track of your scores? <laughs> Birds of a feather flock together. Don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't change horses midstream. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Don't cry over spilled milk. Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't put the cart before the horse. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Every cloud has a silver lining. Give someone an inch and they'll take a mile. If a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing well. If at first you don't succeed, Try, try again. 
People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Lightning never strikes twice in the same place. Nice guys finish last. No news is good news. If you can't beat them, join them. Rome was not built in a day. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Strike while the iron is hot. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. The early bird catches the worm. The grass is always greener on the other side. The pen is mightier than the sword. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. The rotten apple spoils the whole barrel. The squeaking wheel gets the oil. There's more than one way to skin a cat. <laughs> Two wrongs don't make a right. Waste not, want not. And number 40, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Count up your scores. Okay. Raise your hand if you got 31 to 40. Whoa. You are all proverbial geniuses. Okay, how about 21 to 30? Quite a few many, okay. We will designate you proverbially bright, okay? How about 11 to 20? Ouch. Okay. Proverbially dull, okay? Anybody get 0 to 10? One? Did, did, you, get, did you get it, really? You go, girl. All right, we have one proverbially challenged person. Okay, so what's a proverb? Anybody? A wise saying, we must say more. The book of Job was filled with lots of wise saying, but it was not these. A wise saying... What else? Catchy. 
catchy. Short. It's just a statement. It promotes a better way to live. Does it always work? So it promotes a better way to live in certain contexts. Consider the difference, the, the significance of a proverb. It's short, pithy, memorable. You could say, look before you leap. Or you could say, in advance of committing yourself to a course of action, consider your circumstances. <laughs> you could say, a stitch in time saves nine. Or you could say, there are certain corrective measures for minor problems that when taken early on in a course of action, forestall major problems from arising. My kids feel like I talk more like the second way than the first way usually. But Proverbs are useful in the way that they, they take so much information and just condense it. But the challenge is when you get smaller and smaller with your words, you tend to generalize more and more. So let's consider some characteristics of certain Proverbs in the Bible. Proverbs in the Bible, not all of them, but some of them, are very situational. Meaning, they're telling us truths, but all truth does not necessarily work in every situation. Consider how these English Proverbs compare. Would you say one is false and one is true? Or can you have contradictions that are actually both true? Birds of a feather flock together. Opposites attract. Which is right? Yes. And that's how Proverbs often work. So that, my point is, this is going to call us then to recognize that part of wisdom is discernment. About what's right for the moment. And what's right in one moment may not be what's right in another moment. One of the things I've told my students many times is, I don't approach life like a ladder where God's at the top and as long as He's at the top and then you know my wife and my children and my, my personal devotion life. Life it doesn't quite work that way. When I was serving as a pastor, there were times where my wife would have loved for me to stay, but I needed to go to the hospital. How does that work with the latter? I, I think our relationship with God is more like a wheel with, He's supposed to be at the center. And then we have all these different spokes, responsibilities in our lives, and as the wheel of life goes around, different things take weight. What that means is that Last semester, you may have been an A student. All things considered, you were able to devote yourself and get A's. This semester, what faithfulness to God might look like is B pluses. Because of 
changes in health, changes in family situation, changes in roommate dynamics, changes in your work schedule. And if you get A's this semester, you will have been unfaithful to all that's on your wheel. Because you're not just a student. God is calling you to be a holistic person. And what that means is that wisdom demands you to have discernment because sometimes opposites attract and sometimes... What was the other one? Birds of a feather flock together. How about this? Too many cooks spoil the broth. Two heads are better than one. That's how Proverbs work. Situation clarifies what's true right now. Not all Proverbs are that way. Not all Proverbs are situational. But many of them are generalizations. So you need to recognize when you're reading, this is one of the areas you have to assess. Is this one of the general truths? It's not that it doesn't matter, it's that God's actually giving us wisdom for certain situations. He who hesitates is lost. Look before you leap. Yes. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. A man's reach should exceed his grasp. Both are Proverbs, both are sometimes true. But they're not both true all the time in every situation. And therefore, we need the fear of God and the help of Christ to have discernment. Look with me at Proverbs 26. Here's how it works. Proverbs 26, verse 4. This is the closest example in the book of Proverbs of how Proverbs can be situational truths. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what are you going to do? Answer or not answer a fool? Everything depends on the context. Whether you speak or whether you hold your tongue. And you need the discernment growing out of the fear of God, the principles of instruction you've been given, to know which is right for right now. Look with me. Proverbs 25, 11. This kind of captures the essence of many Proverbs. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. That's what a proverb is. It's the right word at the right time. A word fitly spoken. But a fool is one who speaks out of order. Remember, wisdom is about proper order in God's world. Exercising It's exercised knowledge in relation to right order. Look back at chapter 26, 
Verse 7, like a lame man's legs, which hang useless, is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Where I serve in Ethiopia, their culture is just loaded with proverbs. One of my national partners is constantly saying proverbs. Did anybody grow up in a home where proverbs were part of your life? Not, not, I'm not saying um, where reading the book of Proverbs on a regular basis was part of your life. That's probably a number of your homes. Some people read a proverb a day because there's 31 of them. 31 chapters. So, not one proverb a day, one proverb chapter per day. Um, but what I mean is, did you grow up, did anybody grow up in a home where you had an uncle who was constantly sharing proverbs? Like, wise sayings to you? I didn't. Anybody? You did? Was it Brandon? Do you remember any proverbs? No. <laughs> Fair enough. It was actually your uncle, though. Okay. Um, verse 9. Verse 9. 26, 9. Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. So, we want to try to get this right. If we apply Proverbs wrongly, we're like a drunk with a thorn in his hand. So, some Proverbs are generalizations. Other Proverbs are absolutes. You've got a list of verses in front of you. I want you around your tables to go through, in contrast to a proverb that is right in some situations, how would we discern which proverbs are always true at all times? So you've got a list. It says absolutes. Read all those proverbs together and try to see what the common denominator is between all the verses. You don't have to read the, the monologue Ecclesiastes passages, just the Proverbs passages. Okay. <clears throat> so what distinguishes a situational proverb from an absolute proverb? Let's go this table here. Okay, what, what makes that different? Okay, so if the proverb specifically relates to the character or activity of God, then it by nature has a, a groundedness in space and time that's going to be true in every context. Now certainly there are contexts that are by nature conditional. If you do this, then this will happen. Well, that's situational, but the truth nevertheless stands. Were there any of those verses that potentially would seem to challenge that statement? Those of a crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are His delight. Is there ever a time when the blameless are not God's delight? No. Ever a time where a crooked heart is not an abomination to the Lord? Never. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Is there ever a time where God is not that in charge? 
The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Is there ever a time where that is not true? I mean, have you ever seen wicked people go unpunished? Okay, now now some people are saying, well, maybe it's not true. In the immediate, okay, now we're being forced to do theology. (laughs) And believe it or not, that's what the Bible wants us to be doing. So there are a number of people, even I mean, conservative, Jesus-loving Proverbs folks who simply say, well, Proverbs are situational. Don't think of Proverbs as promises. How many have heard that? Don't think of Proverbs as promises. I want to push that a little bit. I think one of the areas of wisdom that the sages were wrestling with was to try to understand... How does covenantal principles, like we read in Deuteronomy 28, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. If A, then B, why is it that that doesn't always seem to play out in this life? That is, there are many wicked people who seem to be really blessed. Look at, with me, well, I'll just read it. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14. There is a, what I would translate, an enigma, a mystery. There is a mystery that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say, this is a mystery. One of the things the sages are wrestling with is that this principle that cannot be thrown out. I believe there is a foundational principle in all of Scripture that only those who are righteous and by that meaning aligning perfectly with God's definition of right order where He's at the top, there is a perfect demand for obedience in order to enjoy blessing. You have to do in order to enjoy righteousness and life. And everyone on the planet except one one who was more truly human than I am, met the standard. If you obey, then you enjoy blessing. That's the old covenant structure. Righteousness and life, from Mount Sinai forward, righteousness and life were the goal and not the ground of their existence. Jesus comes under the old covenant and perfectly meets the demand that no other person in the Old Covenant could meet. They could only enjoy righteous status by faith, trusting God to do for them what they couldn't do on their own. 
Jesus comes and meets the righteous standard, the perfectly wise man, and secures the life that was only future. And now in the new covenant, the structure is different. He has secured for us the life and the righteousness that become the ground, the basis upon which we stand. So now, rather than obeying in order to live, we trust Jesus' obedience and enjoy life. We trust His wisdom and enjoy life. Even in our imperfect state. But we have to be able to read Proverbs believing the truth that someone could be blameless, but not perfect, blameless like Job, and still experience trial. If A, then B, doesn't mean if B, then A. That's how Job's three friends. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. Your The effects in your life, it's very evident, all is really bad, therefore you must have been bad. And the book says that's not how you, you can't do the logic in reverse order. God can purpose that good people suffer. Good people, meaning dependent on Him, surrendered to Him, and trusting in His substitute. He can determine that Those good people, truly blameless and upright before God, forgiven sinners, can experience suffering not because they were bad. It wasn't because this man was sinned or that his parents sinned that he was born blind. But it was for the glory of God. So, there are absolute proverbs... And they're absolute because they're connected to the character of God. And yet it still demands a third category. Some Proverbs are situational. Some Proverbs are absolute. And then the Proverbs that make promises about the future. This is where I was headed. There's There's a number of evangelical people who simply say, Proverbs just gives generalizations that are true sometimes, that work out sometimes, and when promises are made, it sounds like a promise, but it's just a proverb. It's just, you, you can't put your faith in that promise. And I say, no, that's not, no, there are actual promises in the book of Proverbs. We just have to read them with an ultimate lens rather than an immediate lens. You and I need the hope that indeed the wicked are going to perish. This is Romans 12. This is the fuel for us to love those who've harmed us. You were wounded by a past boyfriend? Paul says, don't respond to evil with evil. Respond to evil with good, for the Lord has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. There's a promise to bank your life on. Okay, God's going to bring justice, far better justice than I could ever bring, and I will entrust it to Him and not carry the burden. In fact, through that, I will be empowered to even love this person who harmed me so much. Because God will be just. And whether His wrath is poured out on the Son of God, on behalf of this person, or whether He endures it, God will be just. 
And I have to be able to read Proverbs and read these statements that sound like promises as promises. But I have to be able to fit them within a framework, a biblical framework of suffering and of eschatology. That the future is secure, but not all the future is mine yet. There's an overlap of ages where even though I have experienced deliverance, it's not all final. So let's consider the last category. Ultimate eschatological truths. Around your tables, read through these texts together. Just split them up by chapters. Promises not for the present age, but for the future. We have to be able to have a lens when we're reading the book of Proverbs that considers, is this situational? Sometimes true, sometimes not true, or always true but related to the future and not the present. Read that list around your tables. You've got a group of promises. So Proverbs, we're looking at Proverbs 10, 13, 22, 26, and 2 from 28. All right. In all those Proverbs that you just read, one of them mentioned the fear of the Lord, but beyond that, they didn't mention God. But I would propose we cannot limit the Proverbs that are always true only to those that mention God explicitly. Those that also refer to how He has determined to orchestrate order in the world, which means he will judge wickedness and elevate righteousness. Those that are related to that, that that we need to read as, as hope for us today, when the days of darkness are many. But we have to have a long range view of life. One that recognizes 70, maybe 80 years We don't know how long our suffering will last, but it won't last longer than that. But normally, the pattern of spring overcoming winter and light overcoming darkness, it's happening every single day. You wake up every single morning, the light has triumphed, and it's designed to give us hope in the the now. It may feel like the weightiness, the, the cold, the shadow is lingering But usually, God allows the pattern of light to triumph more than once in your life. It it keeps returning. And so we go to bed at night hoping, pleading, God, please, take, take this away. The doubts, the fears, the hurt, the pain. Will you bring me another Another girl, I thought she was the one and she's gone. Will you bring me another? We don't have a promise that says he will, but we do have a pattern of his character that identifies he's working things through cycles and he continues to bring light every morning to triumph over night. Hope not only in the promises of God, but in the character 
of God. Whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will have a goodly inheritance. Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. And I'm saying, I think we're supposed to be able to read that and not just say, well, it might be right sometimes and not other times. No, it's always right. We just need to live with a a living hope, says Peter. A hope is something not realized yet, but a confidence that it will be realized. Now, with all these statements, I mean, it's it's clear in the book of Proverbs. I'm just going to read three. Proverbs 11.16, A gracious woman gets honor, and violent men get riches. So here's a proverb within the book of Proverbs itself that identifies... Bad people sometimes succeed. Like, that's within their theology. They understand. They're in a real world. And yet they're speaking truths about the future that I believe we can bank our lives on. Proverbs 13, 23. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. We as Christians are to care about all injustice in this world especially in justice against God. Justice is about giving someone their due. And the world is filled with people who are showing injustice against God in their failure to surrender to Him, failure to treasure Him, failure to believe Him. But this is an injustice, and the book of Proverbs recognizes it. Proverbs 18.23, the poor use entreaties, but the rich rich answer roughly. That's the real world. And into that world, Proverbs speaks wisdom. Hear these Proverbs. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Proverbs 11, 21. Proverbs 24, 19 and 20. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. That's hope for you and me living in a broken world with people who can hurt, harm, and who don't have our best interest at light. So step one, when you approach Proverbs, I'm encouraging you to do to, to a query from three perspectives. Is this a generalization that doesn't mean a falsehood? No, it's true, but it's true in certain circumstances. Or is this an absolute proverb because it's connected to the character of God or how he has set the world in motion such that when I read a prediction about the future, I can still bank on it, but I must be able to assess it as not an immediate, a promise for the immediate future, but for the long-term future. That Christ ultimately, as the wise one, has secured this for me. So, first step, 
Ask yourself, what kind of proverb is this? What's it teaching? Second step, <laughs> second step, second step, let the proverb move you to fear God and to treasure Christ as wisdom. I just want to look at a series of truths that shape this book. Number one, the agent of wisdom in the book of Proverbs is the king. It starts out, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. So all of a sudden, there's this influx of background. Okay? Not only David, the king of Israel, the very one that God promised he would give him a throne that would last forever. That's part of the background to the book of Proverbs. Not only that, we have a father who has apparently passed wisdom on to his son. Look at Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs 4, look how it opens. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. Be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts, and do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. Why this is significant is because Solomon's mother was Bathsheba. And this section is introducing a unit saying, don't go after the wayward woman. Pursue the wise woman. And David taught his son as a dad who failed drastically in his faithfulness. Heed my voice, Solomon. But not only that, look at how that passage started. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear, O sons... Who's talking? The king. To whom? The royal family. Verse 10, hear my son. Verse 20, my son, be attentive. Chapter 5, verse 1, my son, be attentive. Yes, this book, I believe, has wisdom for everyone in the Christian church today. Old, young, Boys, girls. But it's shaped in a context of shaping a specific group. Royalty. The wisdom in Proverbs is giving us an eye of what not just the royal family would look like, but what the future king, that is the Messiah, would look like. Solomon is instructing his future son. And generations would pass and that son would be Jesus. Read Matthew chapter 1. Uriah's wife is in his genealogy through Solomon. This is wisdom coming from a king to shape a king. 
And so my challenge for you, and you may have never read Proverbs this way before, but before you start trying to discern what's right and wrong for you, celebrate that the king has come. And he discerned right and wrong perfectly all the way to the cross and beyond. And now he is seated on the throne with all authority in heaven and on earth, overseeing his world wisely. And he's for us and not against us. Just allow your bathing in the wisdom of Proverbs to help your heart exult in Jesus. I think that's actually part of the intention of the book. Consider now the second unit. Um, There we go. Go to Proverbs 8. Verse 22, wisdom is actually talking here. The Lord possessed me the beginning of His works or the beginning of His way. It says at the beginning, but there's actually no preposition in the text. The Lord possessed me, comma, the beginning of His way. The first of his acts of old. At the very beginning, when anything that was not God came into being, wisdom was already there. The Lord possessed wisdom. Ages ago, I was appointed Uh, My ESV says set up. It's the same term and it's only found one other place in Psalm 2.6 where it says that God will set up His Messiah in Zion. His anointed one. Establish Him like a royal figure to oversee God's kingdom. I was set up, says wisdom, from the beginning. Appointed eternally. Eternally appointed I was already there with a role of governance at the first from the beginning of the earth. Notice a twofold distinction here. 23 through 26. I was set up when there were no depths, I was brought forth. That is, he was strengthened. When there were no springs, abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was strengthened or brought forth. I was there. I was already in place, being an active agent. Before He had made the earth with its fields, so before creation, wisdom was already there. Like, the, if you see any work, I was at the front end. I... I was the source. But he's talking about before any we could see anything. All that we see, before it was here, I was already there. This wisdom is talking a lot like the New Testament talks about Christ. The Word with God was God. 
Through him, all things were made that are made. John 1. Wisdom. The firstborn of all creation. That's how Paul talks about him. But, but when he says firstborn of all creation, he doesn't mean that he was created. Because he goes on to say, all things came through him. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. They were created through Jesus for Jesus. The very thrones and the very rulers and authorities that he triumphs over in the very next chapter of Colossians 2, the spiritual powers, they were created through Jesus for Jesus. That is, to say that he's the firstborn of all creation doesn't mean that he was created. Because it says everything came through him, everything is for him, everything is from him. So to be the firstborn is to be the authority over, the preeminent one over. And that's how wisdom is being described here. Not only that, once he established Once God established the earth, so wisdom was with God before creation, now in the midst of creation. When He established the heavens, I was there. When He drew a circle on the face of the deep, when He made firm the skies above, when He established the fountains of the deep, when He assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress His command, when He marked out the foundations of the earth, I was beside Him. Like a master workman, I was daily His delight. I rejoiced. Before Him always, I rejoiced in His inhabited world. I delighted in the children of man. Wisdom is connected to the King in this book. Wisdom is something that was set up, established, appointed with with like a royal role before creation was active as a workman in the midst of creation. And now we go to chapter 30, verse 4. Turn with me there. We'll begin in chapter 30, verse 1. The words of Agur, the son of Jaca, the oracle. It's a prophetic word. The oracle of the man declares... I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am stupid, too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of men. I have not learned wisdom. Now I would, I'm going to change the translation again. Because the second half of verse 3 has no negative in the Hebrew. I think he's saying this. I have not learned wisdom, but... I have knowledge of the Holy One. Holy One is actually plural, also. I have knowledge of the Holy Ones. Who is he talking about? Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Who? Who's had that much control over creation? What's his name? Anybody? Well, that... Yahweh? In this book, you're not going to see the name Jesus. 
But notice what it says. Wisdom in chapter 8 was with God in the midst of all this creation. You know his name, Yahweh. What is his son's name? Look, that's what it asks. What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Wisdom. Wisdom is the Son of God. Wisdom comes through the King and will embody the future King. Wisdom was before creation and in the midst of creation. Wisdom is the Son of God. A royal Son. Not just appointed in space and time in the future, but present already, seated at the right hand of God before time was. I think already in the book of Proverbs, it's calling us to read this wisdom, not simply as, God, how do you want me to live? What does parenting look like? What does it mean to be a, a godly college student in the 21st century? Before you get there, celebrate that wisdom is Christ. Consider a whole set of texts. Just turn with me. To Matthew 11. We're wrapping things up now. Matthew 11. So John's disciples hear that he is in prison. <clears throat> and we're going to have Jesus compare himself to John the Baptist. The people are questioning, is Jesus the Son of God? Jesus says, verse 19, The Son of Man came eating and drinking with sinners, fellowshipping with people like you and me. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him! He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom <clears throat> is justified by her deeds. The Son of Man is eating with sinners. You're pushing Him off. And then Jesus says, but wisdom is justified by her deeds. He's identifying Himself with Lady Wisdom from Proverbs. Who is not simply portrayed as a woman, in order to entice young men to, do, to want wisdom, in the book, wisdom is royal and wisdom is the Son of God. And Jesus says, I'm it. I am it. Look at chapter 12, verse 42. The queen of the south, who came all the way up to visit Solomon, to listen to his wisdom... Yet none of you will come to me as the source of wisdom, Jesus says. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You and I should be reading Proverbs, reading Ecclesiastes, in a way that says someone better than Solomon has come. The one that he was seeking to train has arisen. 
And He's here for me. He's here with all the wisdom in heaven and on earth, ready to direct my steps. Even though this world is like shepherding wind, you read the verse in Ecclesiastes at the very first assignment. Where does all wisdom come from? It comes from one shepherd. So that phrase occurs seven times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's like striving after wind. It's like shepherding wind. And then at the end of the book, it doesn't call God king. It doesn't call him savior. It calls him the shepherd. When life is like shepherding wind to us, he's doing it this way so that we would fear him, trusting that he is the good shepherd. In, at the end of Ecclesiastes, it's called one shepherd. That phrase occurs in Ezekiel 37. Speaking about the Messiah, he is one shepherd who will come. And then in John 10, only three places in all the Bible. Wisdom comes from the one shepherd. Ecclesiastes 12. And Jesus says, not only I am the good shepherd, but he says there is one shepherd for both Jew and Gentile alike, and I have come to bring them in. John 10. One shepherd Wisdom bound up in Jesus. Last passage, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called... Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Verse 30, Because of God you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Every stage in our growth in God, grounded in Jesus. Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. Yes, they are books about choices. Making good choices, living wisely today. But the only way it's possible is in the fear of God. It's the only way. A fear that recognizes all of my tomorrows are in His hands. And He can only be for me because the all-wise Christ has gone before me. But we have a Savior who is fully wise in all that He does, in all that He has been since before time with the Father, now seated with all authority for us, 100% full of wisdom. So pray, seek it, hunger for it, turn from foolishness, Run toward God. Don't let suffering and challenge cause you to stumble and flee. Wisdom matters in that context. Treasure Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you gave us Jesus as wisdom. Thank you for your book. I pray that these students would increasingly learn to read your word carefully, 
to recognize that the fear of the Lord, the only uncaused one, the controller of all things, the one who has made this world crooked that cannot be made straight, the one who makes both the days of adversity and the days of prosperity, yet in a way that we don't know what's coming next. You who are that big, work in us what is pleasing in your sight. Help us to fear you. You oppose proud people. You give grace to humble people. Help us walk in the fear of the Lord, all the while treasuring Jesus. Guide our steps for your glory, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. For more information about Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, we invite you to visit www.mbts.edu. For more writing, sermons, and lectures from Dr. DeRoshi, please visit www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.